Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, we come before you with humble souls, with humble spirits, bowing down before the throne of grace as we close out this day, this day that you've given us to rest, this day that you've given us to worship you, this day that you've given us to do works of mercy, to reach out to the orphan and the widow and the poor and the powerless, Lord, and to show them what we have in Christ Jesus, what he has given us, to come together as fellowship of believers to proclaim the great things that you have done for us, your great salvation, how, have you, how you have redeemed us for yourself. You have saved us from our own sinfulness. Lord, as we close out this time, I pray that you give us hearts that are open to hear your word. Give me the strength to proclaim it with boldness and without error. And we pray for the physical needs of our church, all of those who are physically suffering, all of those who are in mental anguish, who might be going through some sort of spiritual depression during this time. Strengthen them. Hold tightly to them, Lord. Let them trust in your providence and your timing of all things. We pray for those missionaries out in the world during this time that are doing the hard labors of proclaiming your word to people groups who have not heard it or people groups that have heard it and continue to reject it. We pray that you give them strength during this time because we know that you have promised to build your kingdom to the ends of the earth and we know that you are true to your promises. So we ask that you fulfill those during this time and that you strengthen those missionaries that are there doing the work on the front lines in your name. Lord, we pray for this immediate community around us. Even though people know of Jesus, they do not know of his saving power. And I pray that as a church in this community and in the community at large, that we are beacons of that light, that we are able to show these people that they do not need their good works, they do not need their knowledge of Jesus, but they need to know him in a saving way. I pray for them. I pray for their souls. Open their eyes, Lord. And I pray for us during this hour that you bless us, that your spirit is amongst us, and that you're glorified above all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today, we're going to be considering a passage from Isaiah 35. A lot of Churches in Mississippi, especially smaller country churches and throughout the South, they have these services called homecoming services. Um, I've never really heard sort of like an explicit reason why they do this. Uh, it's more of like a community outreach type thing to where uh, people that are in the church bring their family members in for a homecoming service. Um, and it's usually a lot of these, these are very smaller, small churches that usually do this, and it's usually their biggest service of the year. And I got invited to preach one of these homecoming services uh, this past summer, this past July, for, uh, ironically, a, a Methodist church. But um, it was a great time. Uh, many of the lovely people there, they're, they're true believers, all of them. So um, 
I preached this homecoming service on this theme of homecoming, but I, I thought it'd be good for us to consider it too because it kind of reminds us that we are, are pilgrims in this world, that we're in a sort of exile here. I think we can all kind of agree on that. that we're in some sort of an exile. And so it's kind of useful for us to kind of see where our home is, where we're headed towards the end, what we're working for, what we're striving for while we're here. And so that's what we're going to consider right now. It's the ultimate homecoming. Because it's homecoming in scriptures, it's a very prominent theme there because it's good to reflect on the fact that we're not made for this world and that we always have a God-ordained perfect renewal that's coming and it's really a source, a blessed source of hope for the Christian. It gives us strength to persevere in times of trial. It should be a major source, source of joy for us. And I'll be honest, nothing, nothing really gets me hyped up quite like reading chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, and I'm just going to spoil it for you. We're going to go there at the very end. But our primary text for today is Isaiah chapter 35. So if you would turn there, Isaiah 35... And before I get there, I'm going to kind of set the scene for what we're about to read here in Isaiah. You probably already know a lot of this, but I'm still going to rehash it anyway because it's, it's nice to uh, be reminded of the things that we know. And if you someone's here that doesn't know it, that'd be good for you to kind of set the stage of what's going on in Isaiah up to chapter 35. And you know, Isaiah is one of the major prophets. We don't separate the major and minor prophets into those classifications because the major prophets are, in a sense, superior to the minor prophets in any sense of the word like that. The major prophets are just longer. Now, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they're just longer than the minor prophets. And of these, Isaiah is, is the longest in terms of chapters. Uh, Jeremiah is slightly longer in terms of number of words. But Isaiah is the longest in the terms of the chapters. But and Isaiah is really more, the most grand of the prophecies here, I, I think, anyway. So in a sense, I would say Isaiah is like the major, major prophet. As much as he talks about Jesus and the servants and all the songs that are coming and the things that he looks forward to and his eschatology, and he's, he covers so many topics. So he's, to me, he's kind of the major of the major prophets. And at this point in Israel's history, remember the kingdom has been split. It's been split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah for a few hundred years at this point. The nation entered the promised land. God promised them that if they kept his commandments and loved him above all else and forsook the gods of those nations around them and worshiped him only in the way that he commanded, then he was going to prosper them. That's the promise that he gives them when they go into the promised land. They're going to be blessed in the land, and he's going to protect them from any foreign invaders. But, there's a big but, if they failed, if they did not follow him and instead followed all those nations around them and served their gods and did not follow the commands of Yahweh, then God is going to tear away the land and send foreigners in and carry them off into captivity. This is promised in Deuteronomy. So after Solomon, the kingdom's torn in two. The northern kingdom doesn't have the kingly line of David. All the northern kings are bad kings, and all the people are desperately wicked. Judah, southern kingdom, has mostly bad kings, with a few good ones sprinkled in. Remember, I'm going to remind you again that God makes a covenant with David. I talked about that in my last sermon. The Davidic covenant is a very strong theme throughout all of Scripture, and especially in the New Testament. And remember, in this covenant, God promises that no one, that there's never going to cease to be someone from David's lineage on David's throne. You know, this ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. We know this. But the same set of the covenant curses were applied to Judah. These weren't just for the northern kingdom. Those covenant curses, them tearing them away from the land, those are for Judah too. It's not just for the northern kingdom. So if they forsook God, God's going to give them over to foreign invaders too. 
Back to Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy spans quite a long time. You know, it's 66 chapters. And we could read it if you sat down in a few hours. It's a very helpful chart, Bert. Thank you. You could read it in a few hours. But his prophecy itself actually spans about four decades from the, in, the, in chronology there. About four decades for Isaiah's prophecy. Multiple calls for repentance. Multiple calls for them to turn away from their sins. In the later chapters, Isaiah sets forth what's called those servant songs, those wonderful servant songs, where there's some very explicit prophecies about the coming Messiah, which, of course, Jesus fulfills down to the very last word. While Isaiah was alive, the northern kingdom gets conquered by Assyria. So Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom while Isaiah is alive. The people of Israel in the northern kingdom get deported. Assyria tries to take Judah and Jerusalem. But during this time, Hezekiah is the king. Hezekiah is a good king, and he follows the commands of God delivered through Isaiah, and Judah spared. Judah and Jerusalem are spared during this time. But after Hezekiah dies, there's some evil kings. The people rebel later, and Isaiah prophesies that the nation of Babylon will come and overtake Judah, and the Judeans will be exiled to Babylon. This is all explicitly written down in Isaiah. He also has some other specific prophecies that would not come true until much, much later. Like I already mentioned, he prophesied about, these, about Jesus. He gave many details about this Messiah. But Isaiah never, never gives Jesus' given name, Jesus. He, call, he calls him many wonderful names, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, Emmanuel. All of those are in Isaiah. He never gives us his given name of Jesus, though. But in a, a counterexample, Isaiah specifically says that a man specifically named Cyrus is going to come and deliver Judah from their exile and let them return to their land. He's named. Cyrus is named in Isaiah's prophecy. But the magnificent thing about this is Cyrus is not going to come until 200 years after Isaiah says this statement, even though Isaiah calls him by his specific name. And Cyrus is a Persian king who overtakes Babylon and much of the ancient world at that time. And then he makes a proclamation that the Jews can return to their home. And Isaiah predicted all this. So Isaiah, you've got a lot of hope. You've got a lot of doom. You've got a lot of calls to repentance like you've got in a lot of the prophets. You've got those all interspersed. And there's also a lot of these prophecies of hope in Isaiah. And that's going to bring us to our text today. The text today, Isaiah wrote this prophecy to encourage those people in the future, remember they're not exiled now, but they're going to be exiled. And he wrote this to encourage those exiles in the future generations to show them the hope of the future that they would have. So this is Isaiah's prophecy of a homecoming. So let's read it together. Isaiah 35, the whole chapter. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sands shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. 
And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Dear God, we come before you again in prayer, in contrite hearts, humble before you, but joyous whenever we read what you have promised your people, because we know that you have promised us good even in exile. Open our hearts during this time. Let the Spirit illuminate the things that we've read, that we are blessed during this time, and that we learn more about your, your nature and our nature so that we can praise you even more. Please bless this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you've ever been on a long trip, you know how, how good it is to return home. To sit in a familiar place, to rest your head on a familiar pillow, to see familiar faces, and to rest in the comfort and safety of a welcoming house. You often need a vacation from your vacation sometimes. For thousands of years now, humanity has been on a long trip with a longing to return home because we were not made for this place. We were made to be at home in the garden, dwelling in perfect communion with God. But because of the sin of our first father, we were cast out of Eden, and all of humanity has been wandering around, trying to figure out how to make it back there ever since. And most of these efforts are completely useless. Most of the efforts of humanity to make it back to Eden are completely useless. We can think, we can fill up our longings with empty things, our longings for home with empty things, with riches and pleasures and things that Jesus tells us that rust and moth will destroy. Or seek to fill it with ideals of what could just be or if this or that comes to pass. We could have our own personal utopia here if the government would just do this or if we got that promotion, or if we had a little more money, or if my team won this, or if my kids would just act right. Or things would just be just a little bit better in this way. Then, then I would be truly satisfied. But we're lying to ourselves. I lie to myself all the time in that way. We will never be truly satisfied with the things of this world. And why is that? You can have all the riches in the world access to absolutely anything you want and you will never be truly satisfied it's because we were not made for this world we want to be home we don't want to be here even in our sinfulness god in his mercy to us has always given his people directions and instructions to cause us to remember what home in the garden was like and to remind us that we don't belong here so when adam and eve were expelled from the garden we are told that they were sent east. That's all we're told. They were sent east. We don't know exactly where the Garden of Eden was, most likely somewhere in the middle of the Fertile Crescent of the ancient Middle East. And after Adam and Eve were sent east, you get this recurrent theme in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, of God's people turning back west, trying to make it back home, and trying to remember what home is like. When God calls Abraham or Abram, as he was at that time, he was a pagan sun worshiper that was living in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, which, by the way, is Babylon. 
So Abram is living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is east. Ur is in modern-day Iraq, east of the promised land of Canaan. So God tells Abram to go west. That's where his home should be. Make it back to Eden to remind us where we belong, trying to remind Abram where he belongs, belongs back home. And later, after their escape from Egypt, Israel's wandering around in the wilderness. So the promised land is north of Egypt, so they're not going back west in that sense. But that whenever they're wandering around in the wilderness, God gives them very explicit instructions on how to construct a tabernacle. So remember, the tabernacle is mobile. They break it down, they put it up, wherever they stop, mobile. They move it from place to place. And every time they set it back up, God gives them very explicit instructions on where it's to be placed in its north, south, east, and west orientation. They couldn't just set it up anywhere. They have very explicit instructions on how to set it up and exactly what orientation on the compass rose to set it up. It was to be set up so when the priests entered the holy place, they enter from the east and walk west. And then once per year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And the Holy of Holies was in the most western portion of the tabernacle. So he's going to go even further west. Later on, the temple's constructed in exactly the same orientation. They enter in from the east, they go west. The Holy of Holies is the most western portion of this. So it was meant to be a reminder to the people that they're pilgrims in the world and their hearts should be focused on returning west or returning home because this is not their home. They're meant to be home. A few other examples from Scripture. When Israel's in Egypt and in the wilderness and after the, the period of the patriarchs in Genesis, there's a, there's a period of 400 year, years when Israel are slaves in Egypt the first half of the book of, Moses, book of Exodus is Moses trying to lead them on an escape from the oppression. They need to be back in Canaan. They need to be back in the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, or they needed to be back home in the promised land where their fathers are from. But even after they had successfully escaped, something else still kept them from returning home. It was because of their own faithlessness and their own sinfulness. They had to spend an extra 40 years just wandering around, literally wandering around, and not enjoying their home. In fact, none of the adult males even make it home except Joshua and Caleb because, you know, they were faithful and they trusted in God when everyone else did not. Nevertheless, the point is that these people are longing to return home. They're longing to return to the promised land. The true believers are anyway. The faithful ones are longing to be back in the promised land in their father, with their fathers, the home of their fathers. That's one example. Or what about, what about Ruth and Naomi? This is an interesting one. So Naomi, remember she's an Israelite. The beginning of the story, she's an Israelite that's living in the land of Moab. Moab is southeast of Israel. Moab is one of their enemies. Distant cousin, but enemies. Naomi was there because sin is so rampant during the time of the judges that God sent a famine upon the land. Naomi, her husband, her two sons moved to Moab. Here her sons marry two Moabite women. One of these is Ruth. The other is a girl named Orpah. After all the men die, Naomi decides that she needs to go back home. She tries to convince her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab and remarry there. You know the story. And Orpah agrees. So when Orpah agrees here... This implies that her home really, really isn't among God's people. She's married into an Israelite family, which are the people of God at this time. They're chosen by God to be his people. She's married into the family, but 
That's not really where her home is because she chooses to stay in Moab. Her home is really amongst the gods of Moab and it's not amongst the God of Israel. But Ruth's reaction is drastically different. She has a powerful declaration of faith. This is what it says in Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. This is, first of all, this is Naomi talking. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi's trying to convince Ruth to, to stay in Moab and go back to her gods of Moab. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. From where you will, for where you will go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the last half of verse 16 again. For where you will go, I will go, and where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Ruth did not want to stay in the apparent security of Moab. Remember, Israel's a mess during this time of the judges. It really is. Moab is her home, her physical home where she was born, where her gods are, but she didn't want to stay there. She wanted to be in the land of Israel where the true God is because she knew that Moab really wasn't her home, even though that's where she was from. Moab wasn't her home. To be amongst God's people, worshiping the one true God, was the home that Ruth really longed for. Race didn't matter. Her nationality didn't matter. Ruth's allegiance wasn't to a country or any sort of geographical area or to her ethnicity. So it's very illustrative for us. What is required to be counted amongst God's people? It's not any sort of hereditary descendants or anything like that. It's not hereditary. It's faith. And that's it. Because of her faith, Ruth is rewarded by being a great-grandmother to King David and an ancestor to Jesus Christ. She knew her home was amongst God's people, and God greatly blessed her. Many, many other examples from the Old Testament. After the land was conquered and divided up by tribes and families, it was considered a very shameful thing for an Israelite to sell his land. It was supposed to be passed down through the sons. Why? It's because that was their home. This was a gift given by God to them as their home. It's to remind them of his promises to them. It wasn't just the physical blessings. It was the spiritual blessings that God is giving them this land. And there's to keep the land to remind them that he has been good to them. So the soldiers of Israel, when they went off to war, they were supposed to look towards the temple. And it was to remind them of their home whenever they're off at war. They would look back towards the temple and they were to remind them. Jews were to make pilgrimages three times a year to Zion to celebrate God's victories and to remind them of the great things that the Lord had done for them again. And then to remind them that even though they had a home in the promised land, they had an even better home that was coming to be fulfilled when David's throne is ultimately fulfilled by the Messiah. And then, of course, there's the exiles we've already mentioned. Many, many examples in the Old Testament about the desire for God's people to return home. So what about the New Testament then? We surveyed the Old Testament very briefly about the theme of home and homecoming. What about the New Testament? Well, probably the most famous parable ever told, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. 
prodigal son leaves his home. He spends all of his inheritance on the desires of the flesh. And in the lowest place a Jewish person could possibly imagine, living and sharing food with pigs, an animal that the Jews absolutely detested, the prodigal son hits rock bottom. And he realizes that this is, this is not his home. He's living with pigs. He's sharing the food of pigs. And he looks around and says, this is, this is not my home. This is not the place where I'm meant to be. I'm not meant to be in the company of prostitutes. I'm not meant to be in the company of God-haters. I'm not meant to be in the company of literal pigs. He needed to go back home. He needed to go back to his father. But he had, he had committed great sins against his father, essentially renouncing the family name, turning, back, turning his back on everything that his father had given him. But the son returns and repents to his father. And what does the father say? It's a paraphrase, but essentially the father says, Welcome home, son. Welcome home. Your sins against me are forgiven. Not only that, because you're home, we're going to rejoice. My son was lost, but now he is found, and this is a cause for a great celebration. So what was the turning point for the prodigal son? It's when he realized how ridiculous he had been in his own sinfulness. But at the same time, he realized where his true home was. It was not living where he was. He needed to be home. Or think about Jesus. In John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So why did Jesus say this? He says this because the Jews were expecting the Messiah to be a military leader. They were expecting him to deliver them from their physical oppression of the Romans. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not, not why I'm here. The heir of David's throne came to establish a spiritual kingdom because his home is not here. His home is not of this world. His home is to be back in the presence of the Father. And this is what makes Jesus' death on the cross so powerful. It's because the darkest moment in human history, Jesus being truly separated from his home, his Trinitarian home with the Father. That's why it's so dark. Jesus is separated from his home with his Father. And not only was he separated, is the Father's wrath is actively pointed at him. This is the way the scene is described in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake 
And what had took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The darkest moment in history is so great that the whole earth is dark. Rocks are splitting in two. There's a great earthquake. And the most significant thing that happens is the veil that separated that holy of holies that we already mentioned in the temple is torn in two, showing that all of God's people now have access to the throne room, not just the high priest anymore. We all have access to the throne room. This is because Jesus took on the wrath of God that we deserve. And all hope would have been lost if that's where the story ends, but it didn't. We know this. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, defeats the last enemy, and then later he returns home. He returns home where his physical body now sits at the right hand of the Father, forever making intercession for those whom he came to save. Jesus knew his home was not here, and he longed to return to his home, and that is where he now is. In the rest of the New Testament, there's exhortation after exhortation telling us to focus our attention not on this world, but on the world to come. Just very quickly, five quick verses from four, diff- four different New Testament writers. First Peter, I mean, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he's addressing us as sojourners and exiles. People who are not in their home. The author of Hebrews in 11, in chapter 11, verse 16, it says, But as, they, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. The exiles and the sojourners are not in their home. They desire to be in their home, a heavenly home. And he finishes it, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He's prepared for them a new home. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That one's pretty self-explanatory. We would rather be away from the body and at home, because we're not at home right now in the body. Jesus talking about his people in John 17.16, They are not of the world just as I am not of the world, because this world is not our home. Then Paul again in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. Dozens more exhortations like this in the New Testament church. All littered throughout all the Old Testament. Those are five very quick examples from four different writers. This world is not our home. Our home is where we long to be, though. We are pilgrims and sojourners, and we need a homecoming, a sweeter homecoming than even the one that we might experience whenever we return to our earthly homes, or if you have any sort of family homecoming that you do. The true homecoming, the ultimate homecoming, is what we truly desire, that will truly satisfy, and it's going to be oh so sweet. So... We have established that in every Christian's heart, there should be a desire for things that are not of the world to be truly home. So what does this look like? How is it described in Scripture? How is the home described? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go back to Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah in our primary text for today and see how Isaiah describes this home that the people of God, is, that are, that they're going to come into. First thing that you see is that you see that the land itself is going to flourish and rejoice. 
And this really does, if you read this, it sounds like a return to the Garden of Eden and its beauty. Look at verses 1 and 2 and then 6b through 7. So I'm going to read 1 and 2, then I'm going to jump down to the second half of verse 6. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Down to 6b. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty, gra- thir- and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Just picture that. Isn't it beautiful the way that it's described, this home? This is like a return to Eden because, remember, Eden is beautiful. It's a wonderful place. So why, why is this? Why is the creation endowed with such beauty? We're told the answer to this at the end of verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The creation is beautiful because the Creator is beautiful. The creation is there to display the glory and the majesty of the Creator. That's the first thing that you'll notice, is that the land itself is described as beautiful and flourishing. That's, that's something to look forward to in itself, right? So how else is the land described? It's described as the emotional and physical ailments of the people are going to be cured. So back to the text, verses 3 through 6a. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The weak, the anxious, the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute are all going to be made whole again. Those are all listed specifically by name here. I'll say those again. The weak, the anxious, the blind, the deaf, and the lame, and the mute. That certainly sounds a lot like the miracles that are going to be performed at the coming of Jesus. And not only that, the land is going to be ruled by the people and not the ferocious beasts. So over to verse 9 then. So the land is going to be ruled by the people. Verse 9. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The redeemed are going to walk and not worry about the ravenous beasts. Now, quick thing to point out. Verse 9 is sandwiched between two descriptions of spiritual realities. In verse 8 and verse 10, those are describing spiritual realities. So I think in some sense... Verse 9 has to also be describing a a spiritual reality, even though it sounds like a physical thing, which it probably is too. But there's some spiritual aspects of this too, just given its location in the prophecy. So it says, no lion shall be there. Who does Scripture describe as a roaring lion prowling about looking to devour? Satan. Satan is not going to be allowed in the land. Neither will any who are unclean. No one who is unclean is going to be there, but the redeemed shall walk there. So who is there? Who are these redeemed? Well, verses 8 and 10 tell us. The redeemed, the ransom of the Lord, who walk the way. Walk on the way. What way does it say? It says in verse 8, the way of holiness. 
The highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. It says the unclean shall not pass over it. It belongs to those who walk on the way. The homecoming, the homecoming is only for the people of God. It's there where God has promised to dwell that his pe- promised to dwell that his people will be constantly enrobed in gladness and everlasting joy and all of the sorrow and the sighing will flee away. So, the redeemed are going to walk there, those who walk on the way of holiness. And how do these people respond? How do the redeemed respond here? In verse 10, the first half of verse 10, it tells us, it says, The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. The people are going to be singing. They're going to be singing the praises of the Lord. They're going to be singing how how He has brought them on the way of holiness. They're going to be singing about the land and the redemption and the joy and the gifts and about this great and mighty God who is worthy to be praised. This is how the redeemed respond with worship, with singing. So Isaiah's prophecy here, it has a threefold audience. He is encouraging future generations that are going to be exiled to Babylon. That's the first audience, those future generations of exiles. He's also describing the final end of days when Jesus shall return for his second coming, inaugurating the new heavens and the new earth. And you'll notice how this language is very similar to Revelation, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But he's also writing to us in our day, describing those spiritual blessings that we receive in our current end times now. It's both an encouragement and a warning to everyone right now in the world. God does protect his people. Satan cannot destroy God's people. The people of God can experience gladness and joy. It's great encouragement for us. It's not the ultimate gladness and joy, but we can experience gladness of joy here, right now, today. It's also a great warning to those who have not repented of their sins and followed the way of holiness or the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ. Those who are not the people of God will not be allowed in the land. The unclean will not be there. Only the redeemed shall walk there. The unclean, the ones that refuse the holiness, they have no homecoming. They're going to be exiled first to Babylon. And then later on, as Jesus says, to the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is a warning. This is a blessing, and it's also a warning. So if you want to share of the portion of the land, if this sounds like a good deal to you, man does it. If you want to share the portion of the land, if you want to partake in the glorious homecoming, then I invite you to repent of your sins, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and trust in his work and accept the robe of righteousness that is offered to you. To not do that is damnation. It's to be exiled. Where Jesus says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But those of us who are believers, those of us who are the redeemed, those who will inherit the land. So let's consider then how we should live in our exile right now in our present day Babylon. Yes, we do have an inheritance in the new earth, but for now, we are here in Babylon. So how should we live? Later on in Jeremiah, in his prophecy, which is written after Isaiah, 
and most of it is addressed to those who are in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah has some of these same majestic prophecies of their return, but he also instructs them while they are there in Babylon that they should be good citizens. They should work hard. They should live peaceably amongst the people of Babylon. Jeremiah instructs the exiles to do that. And we are given the exact same instructions in the New Testament, specifically in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy, to be good citizens, to work hard, to live peaceably, to try to live a quiet and peaceful life amongst our current day Babylon. So that's the first thing. What else? We should seek to live our lives according to God's moral law. Sure, we know we cannot perfectly attain this. That's what we strive for. Because the way is the way of holiness. It's the holiness that is given to us by Jesus Christ. But we still need to heed God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. It shows us how people behaved in Eden, or how we should have behaved in Eden, and how we behave in the new earth. One, God is our primary and only object of worship. Two, we will not make any images of God, but, only, but worship Him in spirit and truth. Three, we will not take the Lord's name in vain. Four, we will honor and enjoy the Sabbath and the Lord's day. Five, we will honor our parents. Six, we will not murder nor hate our brother in our hearts. Seven, we will not commit adultery or look upon another man or woman and lust after them. Eight, we will not steal or even have the desire to steal. Nine, we will not lie or bear false witness. Ten, we will not covet but be content with whatever the Lord has provided for us. This is the way of holiness. Simple. Ten things. Simple but not easy. This is what the blissful life of the blessed man will be like on the new earth. Perfectly following these because we're going to dwell with God in perfect communion wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if this does not sound like something you will enjoy, you need to check the state of your soul because you're not in Christ if this does not sound enjoyable. Because this is what it will be like. This is what the land will be like. This is what the home will be like. And so if this is the ideal world, why, why would we not attempt to live this way in our current exile? If this is what the ideal world will be like, this is what we're looking forward to, why would we not attempt to do this here? If you want a quiet and peaceful, peaceful life, follow God's moral law. Live a life of holiness. Remember, the way of holiness is the way into the land. No one unclean will enter. Like I said before, even though we cannot live a life of complete holiness that is fully acceptable to God, we know this is the work of Jesus, we should still be forsaking sin and killing it because sin still grieves God. In exile, live in holiness. Be good citizens. Work hard. Live peaceable among the people. And live a life of holiness. The next notice that God promises his land to a specific people. In the Old Testament, this was called Israel. A New Testament, this is called the church. God doesn't bring home a bunch of individuals by themselves. He calls these people home as one united group, the church. There's only one institution that Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And that's just not some individuals, it's the church. It's an institution. The bride of Christ is the only thing that God has vowed to protect. Nothing else. That's the way that God has designed it. So we need the local church. In our exile, we need a group of fellow believers to provide encouragement, to provide accountability, 
to join together in corporate worship because this is the way that God has ordained it. That's the, the other way that you live in your current exile. Be an active member of a local church because this is the way that God has designed it and commanded us. And then the last thing, you pray for the return of Jesus. This is a common refrain in the New Testament too. Lord Jesus, come quickly. He has promised us that he will come back with trumpet sound, bringing a great victory, inaugurating something better than the Garden of Eden and the new heavens and the new earth. So in closing, I want you to see what the people of God right now have to look forward to as our finally true and ultimate homecoming. I had to go here. Revelation 21. I'm going to read the whole chapter and the first five verses of 22. It's a bit lengthy passage, especially to close the sermon, but it is so good. It's so, I mean, it gives you so much hope to what you have to look forward to. So Revelation, starting verse 21-1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming at, down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Notice the dwelling there, the home. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That sounds like Isaiah's prophecy. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. There you go. That's Isaiah's prophecy again. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable... The murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those are the unclean that will not be in the land. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the, name of the, 12 the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke of me had a measuring rod to measure the city. And its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, length the same as the width. And he measured the city with this rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each gate made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. There's Isaiah again. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but, those, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's like I said in Isaiah. Repeated there. And if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. Look how, man, that is beautiful, beautiful description. So remember on this day, remember that this is not our home. This is our home. That's what we have to look forward to. We're pilgrims and sojourners. We're in exile. But let's keep our eyes focused on what our true home shall be and our hope that lies with Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the hope that you have given us in your word. We're thankful for the warnings. We're thankful that you have shown us who we are. We are oh so thankful for what you have described to us here, what we have to look forward to. And even though that we are sojourners in this land and exiles, I pray that we seek to live lives full of holiness, obeying your laws, telling us what we have commanded to be, to be done, living as New Testament Christians, as citizens here, with having ultimate eyes to where our true citizenship really lies. Thank you for this hope, Lord. Let us leave this place today with eyes lifted towards heaven and praising your name with singing like you have told us that we will do when we come into the land. Your promises ring true and we trust in them. We're thankful that Jesus has accomplished these things for us, that has made a way for us to come into the land. In his name we pray.